I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. Heat and extreme heat continues to impact communities across the globe. We've seen more frequent events and cascading disasters over the past few years. Staying ahead of them requires that we review our response plans regularly and make adjustments as needed, but also think in terms of both the short and long term to ensure a whole community approach to keeping people safe. With that in mind, this episode is the second of a four-part series in support of FEMA's Summer Ready campaign. We're exploring the effects of extreme heat and how collaboration among state, local, tribal, and federal partners can lead to more educated communities. Specifically on this episode, we talk through how emergency managers can identify impacts, gaps, and challenges that extreme heat has on our critical infrastructure, like roads, bridges, and railways, and how we can all collectively increase awareness, provide resources, and make our communities more resilient. So as we continue our look at um, some of the interesting impacts of extreme heat in uh, furtherance of our Summer Ready campaign, I'm so excited to be joined by Sonny Westcott, who is the lead meteorologist with CISA, or the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, one of our sister agencies within uh, DHS, um, who is doing extreme weather outreach. Sonny, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. I'm uh, I'm always glad to partner with FEMA where I can. I, I find that that's a really beneficial partnership for us. Absolutely. And think about, just thinking about partnership, I mean, the reason why um, I thought it would be just so impactful to talk with you is because you joined us recently for FEMA's Extreme Heat Summit, which was hosted here in Chicago for our agency, as we're looking at this just sort of ever-present um, threat. So thanks for joining there. Oh, absolutely. Getting to go to Chicago and be in one of the taller towers that's available globally and see the clouds from an upper deck was definitely a fun experience getting to present from up there uh, as I speak about the impacts to the city was a a really nice view and a, a touch to bring that home, I think. So talking about the national and then bringing it home to Chicago. Yeah, and for the audience who uh, hasn't followed some of the previous episodes, uh, we we hosted that uh, summit in the 99th floor of the Willis Tower, obviously the second largest tower uh, in in North America. And the thing that struck me, and you tell me what what you thought, is just as we were having this discussion about extreme heat and we're looking over the urban setting of Chicago, you can also see four of the six states that affect FEMA Region 5 in the Midwest – and you think about all of the agriculture lands, um, you really get a sense of all of the area within, you know, the region of America that are touched by the impacts of extreme heat. Yeah, absolutely. They had some great infrastructure that was already moving forward towards green roofing, which was awesome to see from above. Uh, Some of the different threats that can come with that, where you see early decay rates to the green roofs. Uh, We saw some of the the white paint roofs, which was great to see as well. Getting to see where the the do's and don'ts really overlapped, getting to see the metro system and the homes and the urban landscape as a full sprawling as it is from that tower in almost every direction. 
uh, there was a, a great amount of understanding of how the concrete cement mixtures trapping in the heat versus the agricultural communities releasing more moisture, the variance that you can have in the size of the magnitude of a city versus an agricultural community, just stacking the two side by side like that was uh, was really interesting to be able to do from that elevation. I can't wait to talk more about um, some of those things. But before we do, just tell me a little bit about your background and what your unique role is at CISA. So I'm a prior Air Force lead meteorologist, which means I was operational weather. Uh, I was one of the top of my class. I graduated through my uh, career development courses early. I took top forecaster for a good bit. Uh, doing it with the Air Force really allowed me to develop the operations as far as what the impacts of the weather meant for uh, troop movement, training, uh, aircraft movement, drop zones, uh, really being able to understand not just one one city or even one state, but we start regionally. Uh, back when I enlisted, we had a hub, uh, and that hub taught you multiple states at once. And through my own purveyance of wanting to learn more and more and more, I uh, went to school at the same time for uh, my weather degree. And then while I was doing the work within the Air Force, I was trained up to be the lead met. Uh, which gave me the entire nation and both Mexico and Canada for support. Uh, so we would plan flights all across the continental U.S., drops for different training practices, uh, really getting to understand what happens if an aircraft gets an incorrect forecast, what happens if you have troop movements. We learned about what happens if you put a tank overseas into an area that's recently seen a significant amount of rainfall, what that means for the soil. Uh, so there was a lot of getting my early start with impact forecasts. Uh, and then from there, when I got out of the Air Force, unfortunately, due to early onset heart failure, uh, likely due to the stress of some of the different positions that extreme weather can have when you're forecasting for pilots specifically, uh, we moved towards learning about how we can integrate within the communities. They always advocate to go and maybe take a nice relaxing job at an airport. I took the alternative route and I went public safety. Uh, I wanted to continue to give back to my community despite not able to deploy or become a police officer or a field agent with the FBI because of my heart condition. I dedicated the rest of my remaining GI Bill towards different public safety and homeland security degrees. So I've got four degrees now, which is great. I really went full gung-ho on using up all of the GI Bill to get the kicker back. Uh, within that, public safety has the vast majority of the national impacts come from these weather events. So when you see things like fiber going down, uh, communications going down because the power has gone out, buildings flooding out, and the, the residents having to relocate, but where do they relocate to? Uh, there was just so much great ability to take the information and the knowledge base that I had through my passion with climate and being able to apply it to an actual immediate result which is giving back to the community, giving back to our first responders, ensuring the safety and longevity of uh, even my surrounding areas. It's just really fulfilling for me. So I started with CISA in about 2018, uh, doing the critical infrastructure analysis side, moving into a weather role within that. Over time, I became a, an auxiliary team lead while doing weather. I moved over to the executive briefing team, learned how to brief executives on weather threats, moving resources, moving people, impacts that we're going to see from it, and then, of course, the future, what that holds, what needs to be done about it. Uh, tail end of that, I learned telecommunications and geospatial mapping through CISA as well because they offer 
an incredible amount of lateral movement where you can just go agents or organization within moving to different departments and picking up skill sets. I now sit within the infrastructure security division, uh, doing a good amount of collaboration, coordination across the board, uh, reaching out to anybody who wants engagement on extreme weather threats. I do everything local, state, tribal, federal, uh, pretty much just aspiring to share what I can where I can. I'm just so curious because, you, you know, when you are, and um, as you explained, in the meteorologist in, in the military front, you're looking at an event or the current state of, you know, weather in a particular area, but you so passionately can describe the trends over the last hundred years and maybe what we might be facing over the next hundred years. How did, how do you develop that, um, that, that maybe passion for that? Well, uh, a good portion of it I I was born with, naturally. My family all thought I was going to be a lawyer from like age six on. I love to argue. I'm very uh, firm with my thoughts. I research what I want to say before I say it so I have backing so I can tear down the person I'm talking to. So I've always been very aggressive. Uh, just in general with my speaking, I, I won some speaking awards when I was small in uh, middle school and high school. I continued that passion, joined student leadership. And then through that in the military, when they train you up on briefing. Uh, when you say things like um or ah, or you fidget too much, they'll throw things at you. Uh, so you learn how to become a little bit more firm, aware of your surroundings, not distracted. Uh, so all of that really culminated into when I learned all of the evidence, when I did all of the research, taking in all the great work that the other scientists have done since before I was born, and the fact that they weren't taken seriously in different periods of time, getting to build off of the foundation that they really gave to me uh, and utilize that as my my weapon going into these conversations. Uh, I try to maintain my assertive nature without becoming over overbearing. Uh, so I take a lot of good feedback from other people, but my passion really comes from seeing the evidence that these research articles dating way back to the 60s to the 90s, that they saw these trends, they knew this was coming, they warned, they warned, they warned, they have so many good graphics, so much independent data. Other countries have been doing similar studies, all without coordinating or communicating originally, which really gives that viability to the information is that they weren't talking originally. These were all independent studies done uh, where they thought they were you know, on the leading edge of this. So you get to see that there's there's no way that this could have been a coordinated effort originally. This was all founded off of scientific precipice of evidence. And therein by, as somebody who loves evidence, statistics, graphics, I took all of that and I really ran with it, uh, getting to coordinate with international communities now and in our national community, coming to the table and saying, you know, weather doesn't care about boundaries, so we need to stop caring as much about the boundaries when we talk about weather. We need to be looking upstream. Are lows more continuous? I get that maybe we thought they weren't originally, but was that because of our lack of communication with the other countries, our lack of really having more surface data, having more sensor data. Uh, the benefit that comes from so much data means that I have empirical evidence that even if people don't want to listen to what I am saying, they can see the impact. They live in these communities, and I get to speak to the community impact. Whether or not they want to agree with me that climate change is or is not real, they have to notice the trend of extreme weather in their community. These events have never happened there before, and they know it. The damage, unprecedented, the amount of money we have to invest in the communities to bring them back to normal, not even just build back better, 
but just to get them back to operational is becoming so overwhelming. It's hard to deny now. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, so when we think about those impacts, uh, uh, specifically of heat, you know, given the fact that I think you raise a very good point about, um, you know, maybe breaking down the borders in terms of understanding the impacts around us, but just thinking about the U.S. uh, landmass and the U.S. population, you know, sort of set the stage over the last hundred years and what we've seen in terms of the changing environment. Yeah, so there's some great graphics that NOAA's produced that take the uh, 1900s, early 1900s to 2020, and they do them in a a 30-year chunk just about, and it gives you the ability to see the averages over a 10 to 30-year span. So when we talk about it's getting warmer and a lot of people respond back with, well, my state was actually significantly colder this winter or the last couple of winters. The response is that the overall trend decade over decade is moving towards a hotter continent as a whole, not just here, but internationally. So being able to see that this is replicated in other areas within our latitude especially, but looking at the Arctic as well, we can take that and reflect back to the US and say, okay, so this is gonna be a trend because it's a trend everywhere. So now we're looking at what does that mean for our water at the surface? If it's hotter for longer, you obviously just like a sauna, it gets hotter, you sweat, it evaporates out, it goes into the room. You can make it as hot and as moist as you want in the sauna and it will not rain. And we have the exact same effect happening over the continental US. It gets very hot, evapotranspiration kicks in, Everything on the surface, people, plants, livestock, rivers, reservoirs, all of them give up their moisture into the atmosphere when it heats like that. And the atmosphere expands. It can take in that water. It can hold it hostage for longer. So it gets hotter for longer, and then you're low. Inevitably shows up, but maybe it shows up with a delay. So more moisture available. When the low does finally come, it's the kicker event that the sauna doesn't have. And so finally you get all of the rain, but it's too much at once. And a lot of it has started to move downstream with the winds. So we're seeing a trend of the moisture from the West, that aridification that we're talking about now, shifting from drought. Yes, some years are better than other years, but overall the movement of the moisture is pushing eastward. We're seeing that in the vegetation, we're seeing that in the soil content, we're seeing it in the rivers and the reservoir system. But the instability of predicting when this rain is going to come, it's not over an entire season, it's in a handful of events now. We're seeing that globally as well. Uh, Looking across multiple areas in Europe, the same thing, the rivers run dry and then a major flood event happens. The rivers run dry and then a major flood event happens. The same thing in the US. It's just not sustainable to the way that we've built our infrastructure. So over the last hundred years, when we built everything, we built it off the climatological norms before we built it. So if we build in the 1970s, we build off the norms from the 1920s to the 1940s. When it was cooler, it stays in place from the 1950s to 2020, where it's now hotter and it's only going to get hotter, more unstable, but it wasn't built for that. It was built for the calmer, nicer weather that we had before, historically. So now we're just seeing this trend where as it gets hotter, all of these cascading impacts happen, not to mention there's correlating evidence of the drought to seismic activity now, to the higher temperatures in algae blooms, looking at each of the things that this heat touches as it heats unevenly, not evenly across the board, but in different areas at different swings. And that's taking away our median of weather and giving us the two extremes, the extreme cold plunges and the extreme heating on the back end of those. And then the overall shift of heating widespread. 
We, oh, and we've certainly um, seen our fair share, just as I sit here in um, the Region 5 area, which is in the Midwest. Um, you know, we've already seen um, our share of those kind of anomalous events that um, emergency managers have been called to respond to. The algae bloom uh, in Northwest Ohio is a, is a great example of something you just raised. So um, knowing that generally, you know, that we're facing these sort of, sort of greater opportunities of extreme heat, but also the wildly varying um, events of, you know, rain, as you described, and it's going to persist in the future. What are, what are we looking at specifically in terms of the impacts to infrastructure? So when we, when we talk about, we built our roadways to handle X temperature, we built our buildings to these standards. Uh, as many of you know, our standards are, are outdated in a variety of different areas. We don't always update to the newest building codes when we should, whether it's due to cost or just the inability to do so based off of material, structural development. Uh, but looking back at what, what we've done Historically, we use the local uh, materials to build our dams and our reservoirs, but aeration didn't come around until the 1940s, which means that all of our concrete cement mixtures prior to 1945 likely were not aerated and thereby cannot handle massive swings in temperature. It'll crack, it'll try to expand, but be unable to do that breathable expand contract motion, and there'll be damage. We're seeing that in some of our earliest dams. We built dams back in the, the 1905 period uh, all across the New England states, throughout the East, and some portions of the West in the 1940s. Uh, aeration and the material shift didn't really start to kick in until later in the 1900s as a widespread, uh, you should be doing this. So we have threats to our dams. We have uh, what happens if it gets this cold? Where are the cracks? What happens there? When it gets too hot, what happens to the water? Uh, looking at the physical infrastructure of a city is a great comparison because your concrete cement mixtures of your foundations during a heavy rainfall event and higher heat, you're more porous by nature. Same thing with your roadways. So water can now permeate a portion of your foundation and your road. Uh, as it expands in heat, it continues to weaken, to soften, and then it attempts to go back to normal and it cracks. So you see with our roadways, more potholes are developing, uh, but we're also overusing water in certain areas, which leads to subsidence, which can cause your entire roadway to become a sinkhole. Uh, you can see the damage of the compression of the aquifer across multiple cities because the city either relies on groundwater or there's just a, a depletion in the aquifer as a full. So you'll see this compression and this warping in your sidewalks and your roadways. When you go for a, a run and you realize the road dips down in a bunch of different pockets, or if you have cobblestone and you can see the difference in your cobblestone, that wasn't there 50 years ago. These are all what's happening now is the sloping, the compression, the weight of the infrastructure on top of an aquifer that is now unstable. Uh, lots of threats come from that, from the severe flooding. We've seen damages in multiple states, numerous FEMA disasters called in because of the heavier than normal rainfall rates. We're seeing anywhere from three months to six months worth of rain in single events within a 48 hour window. Uh, that being replicated up in uh, Europe as well, they're seeing damages across their agricultural communities, across the cities, throughout their, their entirety of their canal infrastructure. And that replicates here in the US from the same threats. 
too much rain at once removes topsoil from your farms. It damages your buildings. It damages the roadways. It can shift parts of your railway foundation. So then you end up with long-term impacts if you don't go out and fix every portion of your railway or evaluate it constantly. You have aviation delays as our storms become stronger. You can't fly over them at the same rate because of the potential that their, their updraft coral developed too fast. Uh, so more severe storms, more ground delays, more ground delays, more supply chain loss. You end up with these per persisting threats that impact not just the physical infrastructure, but the dependencies thereof. No, I mean, it just the picture as painted is just very complex and somewhat somewhat overwhelming. So I can you know, maybe think about it from an emergency management perspective, you're looking at, oh, well, okay, there are all these things that can happen to this infrastructure. Um, I, I want to maybe talk for a minute about opportunities with uh, working with emergency managers sort of seeing and understanding that threat and thinking with uh, planners, um, community planners, city planners, um, you know, what what opportunities exist to sort of think about our critical infrastructure in our communities and per perhaps take some steps to mitigate the, the uh, potential impacts. Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't all have to be changed at once. Yes, some of it will take significant damage, but some of it will manage to suffice for now. So looking at when we build back post-disaster is always a great move for resiliency measures, looking at things like sponge sidewalks, uh, leaning forward on the, the more green infrastructure that can handle higher heat content without actually cooking, uh, looking at the different mixtures we're now doing with concrete cement that are not only capable of taking on more heat, but require less carbon uh, output. So we, we see that there's great movement. Uh, there's a phrase I usually use when people tell me that I'm, I'm too negative about the future. Um, what positives are there? And it's that disaster drives innovation. When these events kick off and we see destruction, again, whether here or globally, we can see resiliency measures and we can take best practices and share them. So looking at things like what can we do about the roadway to prevent it from getting too high? Arizona painting the roadways a little bit more brighter colored to bounce back some of the albedo. So when you increase your albedo, what cause effect comes from that? When you lean forward on emergency management and you say, these are the threats, they need to be taken seriously, we're expecting in the modeling for the next two weeks to be abnormally hot. Those emergency managers can now take that as an understanding that their at-risk communities are going to see more calls. Uh, you're gonna see the need to check in on elderly people more and more of those uh, actual engagements within the at-risk communities being that they need cooling centers, that they need HVAC, that HVAC repairs are going to become a a larger problem. Uh, HVAC sales in store is going to run out in some areas as we've seen before. Uh, just the different threats. When power goes out, what does that mean for the community, especially during a high heat event, which is usually now what we're seeing triggers these load shedding events. And when you have the loss of power to a community, how do you prioritize response? How long do you prioritize response? What are you doing see managers to make sure that they're not cooking in this heat? The AC availability and the ability to, to calm down, to cool down the body overnight is such a critical thing that we're going to be losing out on over the coming years uh, that really it just comes down to educating your emergency response personnel, amplifying the message to your communities that this is going to become a widespread stress event. This isn't localized. This isn't only your community took damage. This is we don't have enough response operation personnel to help every single person in the state simultaneously. And that there needs to be understanding even during these events that they're doing the best that they can 
to handle the actual symptom. But beforehand, we need to be looking at mitigating the impact from developing in that, that aspect at all. And that's going to come over the next couple of years a little bit more rapidly for some cities than others. So yeah, so think, thinking about cities and and uh, since so much of our infrastructure is actually located in cities and populations, um, you, help me understand the general problem of heat islands um, when we're thinking about uh, extreme heat events. Yeah. Uh, so when you have a, a high heat event, as I mentioned earlier, when you have concrete cement mixtures that when they heat, they expand, they become a little bit more porous, uh, just as a material, they're also able to stay significantly hotter than the surrounding, uh, like grass or wood or, uh, pretty much anything else because they're able to trap in that heat. They can take it in and store it, uh, which you would think is great for the winter, for example, because you want it to stay warmer longer and you want to be able to insulate like that. The downside is, is that when it heats, it heats very high to the threshold. It can hold an incredible amount and it can hold it for very long. So you end up with a situation with the heat island where it's cooking throughout the day, holding it all in. The buildings are getting warmer. They're getting warmer from the outside. The ground is getting warmer, but it's also radiating out the heat longer at night. So you end up with this problem where the sun's gone down, but it's still incredibly warm because you're now heating from the surface. The air can cool down all at once, but if you're cooking from the surface upward, you're creating a new heat field. And over time, the damage that heat field can do, obviously the threat to your populations, you're not cooling down, your threats to your at-risk population, when the air is warmed, it expands, which thereby can hold more pollution. So you're inhaling of less quality air for a longer period of time as well. But you're now also creating this hot, humid field over your city. So within this humidity that develops, you create a greater risk for the next day of heat. You haven't cooled down. There's been no breeze because there was no temperature shift. There was no uh, bubble that forms over that pops when the, the sun comes up in the morning that gives you that nice breeze that comes in that people are used to in the mornings when it's breezy and cool because the air shift. That's going to stop happening in some of these urban jungles that have developed, and it's just going to be so much more unpleasant to continue to operate in. To be able to walk from building to building will be difficult in some areas, significantly more than we're used to. Uh, riding the metro without a uh, continuous flow of HVAC during times when the metro has to shut down, uh, things like your public bus systems, all of those will take additional stressors because of this high heat, high humidity field, because your concrete cement mixtures hold so much heat overnight for so much longer than any other material does. I have so many thoughts running through my head right now. And uh, one of them is somewhat similar to a, a phrase that we sometimes say uh, at FEMA, that you can't engineer your way out of completely away from uh, flood risk. And it seems to me that you can't AC your way out completely out of these heat events, right? There are cascading impacts, especially when we think about those urban heat uh, events. And so, you know, those sort of engineered solutions, you know, bringing in more air conditioners, um, obviously that's going to have an impact on the load, um, the power load, right? And not to mention just the cost. That solution and these events seem to me are going to have a uh, exponentially high impact on vulnerable populations. So that's a long way of getting to, as you're doing your extreme event outreach, how are you addressing education and thinking about the infrastructure that serves our vulnerable populations? 
Yeah, so I know that we we talked during the Extreme Heat Summit about the, the variants of offering cooling shelters, uh, but nobody wants to use them. Uh, offering HVAC, but then they don't want to pay the electric bill from turning on the HVAC. And, you know, unfortunately, some of the times if you over inundate an area with HVAC, then that area is going to pull a mass amount of energy at once. Everyone's turning on their HVAC, both at home and at office, because now we're a half-half community, uh, that we end up with this threat that too many people are running HVAC at the same time. And HVAC overloading during a time of high heat, rolling blackouts, did that HVAC do what you wanted it to do? Uh, so we end up with this, this cascading threat where we're trying to solve the immediate symptom which is it's too hot and they need to cool down. How do they cool down? HVAC. Okay, the problem with that is, is maybe we need to look at fixing the city so that the city doesn't get so hot. Instead of trying to solve the heat for each individual human being, reducing the overall temperature that is retained overnight. So doing things like cement, concrete, uh, ceiling, so that it doesn't absorb as much heat. But then just as you mentioned, it creates the threat if you seal it, that more runoff will occur during a rainfall event, more flood events, more faster moving water accumulating downstream. So you have to really sort of weigh the cost benefit outreach to these at-risk communities. How do we get them uh, to cool down at a rate that is acceptable, but for the longest period of time, because these temperatures are staying hot overnight, they can't simply abandon their pets. They can't simply abandon their, their fruit, the food in the fridge, uh, their work. You know, Some days are gonna be too hot to even go to work, we don't really have a subsidy program in place to say, we understand that you can't work during these days because conditions are hostile for you as a human being, but we understand that you need the paycheck. That problematic variance is going to cause these communities to not want to go to the cooling shelters. They're not going to want to abandon the home. Uh, their stuff that they do have that they've managed to accumulate uh, the the fact that multiple households can be in the same building, you end up with that thread as well, where a single HVAC unit, even if you did provide it, may not cool down that home to the rate of the amount of bodies inside the home. On uh, that bill, who pays that bill? So there's there's a lot to be said about how do we help the at-risk communities at large versus individualistically. And it really comes down to looking at the infrastructure that they live in and trying to cool down the surrounding area. Whether that's doing white roofs, whether it's more shade, trying to get the heat to not build up is really the movement forward at that scale. Because there are so many people in our urban jungles that are going to face this high heat content. And it just cannot be an individualistic building by building solution. It has to be something addressed. All these buildings in this area are at risk of this temperature threshold, which is dangerous and will cause damage to the infrastructure anyway. It's a win-win. You save your people and you save your actual facilities. So that's that's the best route that I would advocate is that there needs to be a look at what climate resilient products, uh, what placement, what materials all need to go into place in those communities first. They're also great because you can scale it out as a test bed. You can start it in multiple communities, in multiple different cities, and see what the resiliency is region by region. It'll all have a positive effect in most regards, but which one has the best effect will also help not just here, but internationally, and we'll take the same best practices from abroad. The painting the rails white, for example, is what the UK did in order to get their rail industry back on its feet after their heat wave. But then they ran into an immediate issue of not being able to have their systems understand where the rails were, because now the rails were white and their system wasn't uh, updated to reflect that. So we get to take that best practice. Yes, painting things white is great, 
do we have systems that do scanning that are purely based off of color imagery? And if so, do we now need to move to heat mapping? So there's, there's a good amount that we can do at the local community as they're the ones who suffer first. They're the ones who respond first. Uh, that giving them the tools that they need to make the right decision, the right options for them to consider doing, uh, that's that's really the biggest step forward. So, Sunny, you know, I mean, I think what you're getting at there is really a a reminder of how important the work that FEMA is doing in advancing our strategic plan. And I don't know, I don't know how familiar you are you are with the goals of the strategic plan. But specifically, you know, we have a goal of instilling equity as a foundation of emergency management, uh, leading whole of community in climate resilience, and then finally promoting and sustaining a ready FEMA and prepared nation. And all of those goals, I think, are highlighted in your discussion about, you know, the potential impacts to vulnerable communities, uh, as we look at climate, and then also thinking about, you know, just the people that we have, um, that we rely on, to go out and respond to and recover from disasters and making sure that they're aware for the, uh, the potential impacts, just practically speaking of heat. Maybe share with me some of your takeaways, and maybe the message that you would have from a critical infrastructure perspective, to emergency managers, as they are facing more and more of these events and cascading events. Yeah, so the the two days there came with a, a great amount of coordination with uh, National Weather Service headquarters, uh, NOAA, some of their different resiliency offices, uh, and then some of our, our graduate students and some of our college community, which I think was a phenomenal move to have them brought in on studies that they're doing. Uh, wet bulb was brought up in, in great depth, which is awesome because, again, on the climate education side of the wheelhouse, getting someone to understand the difference between heat index and wet bulb which is that you can be hot whether you're in the shade or in direct sunlight. And at what degree is it too hot for your, your body to continue to sustain? Uh, there was such a, a plethora of information, but also being able to engage with them about threats that aren't often discussed. What's the comparison of a higher albedo, a higher re-radiation, right? When we talk about more water vapor in the atmosphere, water vapor being a greenhouse gas, What's the re-radiation threat to things like skin cancer for, for the general society, skin cancer for our firefighters from exposure to harmful materials as well, other cancers developing? So we were talking a lot about, yes, there's obvious impacts to physical critical infrastructure. Yes, there's the immediate threat of life. What's the cascading threats of both? If your infrastructure goes down here, do people mass move within the U.S. to a new area? If uh, we see this increase in sickness from these variables, what do we do about that also? So we we talked a lot about the, the overwhelming nature of the negative information, but then we talked a, a little bit about the, the positives, things that are being done, uh, giving firefighters brighter uniforms. Uh, they're, they're originally very dark and they trap in a lot of heat. Uh, not not the greatest move. It doesn't look as dirty, which is uh, positive, but the overall shift towards brighter firefighter uniforms and what they're seeing to the health of our, our response uh, was a great thing to hear uh, that we started to look at them more of how can we help. Uh, from the weather side of the wheelhouse, a lot of what I used to dislike about weather is that you do your weather, you hand it off to the emergency managers and you back off. You've given them the forecast, they do something with it. That's the end of your engagement. Over time, meteorologists developed a very negative internal sense where they didn't feel like their job was really beneficial. 
that they couldn't see the bigger picture, that they didn't know who was using their forecast for what. So they never got the, uh, the sort of good cookie feeling that you get when you help someone. Uh, we lost a lot of meteorologists to that issue is that they got burned out very quickly. There's a lot of physics that goes into what we do. And when you hand off the product and you just try to shut down your brain, it doesn't work. So now being able to follow it through to say, here's the information for the emergency manager, and then to talk to them, be able to have that back and forth. This is the weather. They ask, why should I care? You get to say you should care because, and then you have your health and human services who come in and talk a little bit more about the more of why you should care. And then now we get to discuss what are we going to do about it, which activates everyone's creativity portions of their brain. Uh, so I definitely think that the, the summit gave me the ability to reach out and touch a bunch of different people in the creativity side. We know the threat now. We've talked about it. We've talked about the impacts to this and that. How can we prevent it from becoming as bad as models are saying it's going to be? If you could levy a challenge to the emergency management community, what might it be? Uh, I would, and the thing that, that I think everybody needs is sort of a database of disaster or destruction, as, as you may want to label it, is being able to say, we know that when winds exceed X many miles per hour, when temperatures exceed blah, blah, blah temperature, when X amount of precipitation falls, that these things break, that we've had to respond, these communities suffered, a nice little, just, just a database, so that when we give forecasts, especially just your general forecast, that it has an impact forecast attached to it. The last time this happened, blah happens. Everyone does it with hurricanes. They say the last time a hurricane came through this area, X amount of damage occurred, and they give it in numerics of cost to repair, lives lost, uh, power outages down for how many days. But we don't do that for other events. We don't do it for our typical forecast where we say, you're expecting four inches of rain over 24 hours. Some people are like, four inches isn't that much. Your response is, but four inches cascading down into your storm drains, which can't handle more than three inches in that same time period, means that at least one inch is going to be standing water plus all the runoff. So being able to really explain to the emergency managers that we need that database in order for our product to really be of use to them, they over time develop it internally but we need it externally. We need it in the computers, in the systems to be able to model it out. Our oldest emergency response individuals are a great asset. They know so much about the community, the topography, the different resiliency measures that are tried and true, but it's all held inside. And they, they verbalize it, but they don't put it down so that other communities can see it. And I feel like that's a severely untapped resource that could be immensely beneficial. I know that there's a lot of climate resiliency options that are coming to the table now. A lot of people trying to do great things. I do think that scalability is important. Starting small, watching for uh, when you implement something, whether it has a negative uh, output somewhere in that threshold that you identify that in your studies and that when something doesn't work, that we as a scientific community, our engineers, our everybody, need to be able to take that step back and say, we tried that route, let's document that that's not a great route forward and pivot and turn and invest in the other direction. A lot can be said about wasted funding on things that we hope will eventually work and maybe just aren't getting to the threshold we need. So I, I do always wanna end on an advocation that I'm huge on innovation, but also being able to take the criticism of maybe that route wasn't the best route. Let's invest in this route instead. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, 
visit us at fema.gov podcast. Thank you.